Hi, Steph. Oh my goodness, it's been so long. I know, we haven't had a podcast out in a while. <laughs> it's, been, it's been really long. I think we actually recorded this podcast that's coming out today in May. It's an amazing, amazing set of nurses. Yeah, so we talked to the SANE nurses mm -hmm. from the emergency department who work with uh, sexual assault survivors. Uh, it's a super interesting podcast, and they really get into what makes their job special and unique, and it, they are, themselves are special and unique, obviously. Right, exactly, and it, it really, they get to the grit of why they love doing what they do and what they also learn and get out of it, which is amazing. I loved it. Yes, me too, and I really think that it's always important to look at all the different things that nurses do and the different facets of it and it's you know because I feel like we sort of do a lot of things and we do a lot of things really well yeah yeah this is just one of those things that we do well <laughs> Leslie does cry in this episode I do I do cry. <laughs> <laughs> not in a bad way but no, she, I did she, cry <laughs> yeah it, uh so Leslie has some new news to share oh man okay so I am currently the interim nursing manager for outpatient hematology oncology well, what? And, I know. <laughs> what? And doing a really great job down there. Kind of a, shook some things up, but uh, really doing a great Enjoying job. Enjoying it. Not not without the support of all my infusionistas on Chef <laughs> 4, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we miss her very much, but it's... <laughs> Don't <laughs> but make it's me great. cry again. I know. Well, you know, that's always my goal. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we... It's good to be back. It's really good to be back. We are have another podcast up uh, in line after Teed this. Up. Yep. yep. And then hopefully get back on a schedule. We also have been super busy with summers and everything else that's been going on in the hospital. So, uh, but we're ready. We're ready to get this yep, back ready in to line. Get rolling again. Yep. It's like it's like the fall. The new seasons come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reruns for the summer, and now the new seasons are out of the podcast. That's right. All right. Well, I hope everyone is well out there. Hope everybody's taking care of themselves. Has had uh, time to get away. Yep. And that's super fresh. Important, uh, especially during this um, still stressful time. Reach out if you have great ideas or thoughts. Okay, take care. Bye. So welcome. Hello. Welcome. Hi, <laughs> I'm Leslie and I'm Steph. It's good to see you all. Well, so we'll start with just kind of introductions. Sure. So my name is Raynetta Liberty. I've been a nurse for over 30 years. Uh, 21 of those years have been in the emergency department. And I have a title, which I don't know what it means, but it's a coordinator of the forensic nursing program. Basically, that what that means is I have to kind of nudge our participants, our team to take call to I do all QA for all the charts and do a lot of training. We do a lot of case review. Today, we're the forensic nursing team. That's what we're gonna be talking about. And I'm sure most of you don't know what that is, those people who are listening to the, this podcast. Most people have never heard of a forensic nurse or know what they do. 
we have a program in the emergency department. And essentially what we do is we provide care for individuals who have experienced sexual harm, pediatric um, and adult patients who have been sexually assaulted or physically abused, strangulation, human trafficking, basically anything that has to do with that can cause some type of harm that has a, uh, some type of relationship to sexual um, abuse. So it's really hard really ties well into um, emergency room nursing because we have a broad scope of patients that we see and we get to see sometimes the worst of humanity on a daily basis. We often get to see the best of humanity as well, but I think it um, really takes a certain type of person to to do this work. So a forensic nurse is a nurse who um, has had special training. We provide evidence collection if a patient wants that, and that helps with any type of legal aspect of a case. We also do a medical exam or a head-to-toe physical exam to make sure that patients um, don't have any injuries as a result of their assault. We also have provide um, options for sexually transmitted infection medications. So some of those medications we give prophylactically, sometimes depending on the, um, the situation, we may test patients um, to make sure that they, they don't have any sexually transmitted infection. And then I think the biggest thing that we do on a daily basis when we care for these patients is provide resources, community resources. HopeWorks is one of our biggest you know, collaborators and they're an advocacy group that really works with patients who have experienced this type of harm and provides, you know, mental health counseling, just follow-up care. But what's going on at University of Vermont, the college, you know, it's it's an awakening. It's a Me Too movement. And the I think the thing that is really striking to me about all the stories, I mean, we deal with these stories, but to hear the stories after they've happened is the long-term you know, health and well-being consequences, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety. These are the common threads that we see with patients who have experienced this type of, of harm. And so if we as forensic nurses can try and mitigate some of that harm by believing them, um, which is what we always try to do. We always try and believe the patients. We always try and listen to them. We spend a lot of time listening to their stories. And we also spend a lot of time just trying to comfort them and to make them know, hopefully, that this is not their fault and that, you know, they there is potential to heal. A little bit about our program. It was started in 1992, so it's been around for a really long time, um, which is kind of surprising. I, I'm still surprised that, patient, that people who've been in our hospital for many years are not familiar with the program. Even the people that work in the emergency department, I think part of that is is we do the work. So you call a forensic nurse and we keep it kind of hidden not on purpose, but we just take those patients away from the, the providers and do all the hands-on work, which for nursing is is really one of the, the nice aspects of it, is we really are the ones who are making um, a lot of the decisions and consulting with the doctors. You know, I'm, I think this is in the best interest of the patient to do this. Do you guys always have somebody on call for the position? Is, it, is there somebody that's always just, when you're in the staff and the ED is always there? Always is is stretching it a little bit, but um, we have 10 
credentialed because you have to really meet a criteria to become a forensic nurse, uh, which includes education and making sure that you perform those cases on a regular basis. We have 10 nurses and most of the nurses that you see here take most a good portion of the call of the call. We do have a great team that takes call. We, we try and require about 40 hours in a pay period that they're required to take. Um, there are gaps in our coverage, which is really challenging to try, if someone walks in, to try and uh, fill that, you know, to provide that care, to make sure that someone is, is on call 24-7. But, but remember, this is, this is almost a volunteer. We certainly get paid, but nobody's requiring us to take this call. This is after our full-time jobs. I'm sure everybody in, in this uh, forum will tell you that they all have extremely busy lives. Some have farms, you know, some have just a new puppy and children. You know, they're, they're, there's a lot of outside commitments that, that the nurses have, but they feel passionate about this work and they feel that the I, what I always like to tell the new newest nurses is is you get up at three o'clock in the morning because after spending time with a patient, you we have the privilege of witnessing their healing, which it's it's addicting. It's really powerful. You know, these are these are challenging patients because we know that disproportionately it affects people who have mental health and substance use disorders, who are incarcerated, who are queer and trans, you know, identified. So some of the marginalized people in our community that we see, they are the ones that are, are really impacted by sexual harm. Can you speak a little bit about witnessing their healing? Yeah, and I just want to take a quick moment to uh, let everybody know we have, is it, do you go by Abigail or Abby? Abigail. Abigail and Abigail Garrett, uh, Louisa Smith, yeah. and Sharissa Ratu. Yeah, I mean, I think for we could all probably um, echo a similar experience, but you walk into a patient's room who is traumatized, who has just experienced probably the worst thing that they could ever experience. And just as a side, I had a provider the other day ask me, well, why is sexual assault so different and have so many more you know, challenges for patients than somebody who's just been assaulted in a bar fight. And it took me back and I and I spent some time thinking about it. And I don't really have a clear answer and I don't know if there's any research to support this, but I really feel like, you know, sex in our society is very personal. Train our daughters to avoid being raped, right? You spend so much of your parenting, you know, avoiding telling your children, don't do this. Don't go there. Make sure you don't drink out of the punch bowl. Make sure that you're always in a group. And then when something happens, that person may feel like they failed. You know, they failed to do the one thing that their parents told them to, to do, and that was protect yourself from being raped. And oftentimes, you know, they don't you don't even realize that this is what has happened to you um, because it's very um, it's very complicated it's very convoluted it's it's not clear what happened so patients come in and they're they feel a lot of anxiety and and kind of self-blame so so they come in a really bad state and then after spending time with them with our advocates who focus a lot on their mental health 
you know, we we build them up and, and empower them and try and tell them this is not your fault. Um, this is something that happened to you and, and it's not fair, uh, but it did happen to you and we can help you to begin to heal. And you begin to witness that. I'm sure we've all had experiences where someone's crying and then they leave and they hug you and they say, thank you so much for the care that you gave me. I can tell you that that does not happen very often in the emergency room. They get thanked. You know, I had one patient who wanted to give me a Yelp review and I'm like, I don't think that's appropriate. That, <laughs> that is the pretty- <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Next time you're assaulted, go to Rosetta. Yeah. Damn. Go to Google. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> And I think in a big way, you're taking somebody who feels completely helpless, like who really has lost all hope in that moment. And you're just giving them some sense of hope for hope for recovery, hope for a road towards recovery. I think that's probably. Oh, that's huge. Right. Impactful thing we see. And maybe handing their power back to them, saying, actually, I'm going to give this back to you. This is yours. Yeah. And we're going to start doing and this is how we're going to how that's going to look. Yeah, we that's one of the you know, that's one of the pillars that we work with in in the same sort of realm that we work with. We don't exactly work with the empowerment model. Um, We don't like, you know, as medical providers, it's it's hard to embody the like 100 percent meet somebody where they are because we have obligations to the health of a person. But that totally that isn't to say that, you know, when once you get somebody warm and safe and cleaned up and start talking to them about what what it is that they want to do and, you know, collaborate with a survivor who inherently knows what they need to create a care experience that is going to serve them, that is going to honor them, that is going to put a little bit of control back in their hands after they were in a situation where consent was not given, their safety was compromised and their their boundaries were breached and harmed. What, like I said, once you get somebody safe and cleaned up and warm and maybe fed, I mean, we have really, we have the crappiest turkey sandwiches in America, but you know, sometimes they do have some healing properties. You begin to, you begin to be able to, there's just a little bit of there's just a little gap in there where you can start to see the unwinding and start to see maybe there there is a path forward here. And I think so much of that is just affirming people in that we believe them. That's a I, I didn't realize how much power that phrase has. We believe mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm so and I'm so sorry that happened to you like those. I just didn't, I don't think I understood that survivors don't hear those words. Uh, Like that's in a lot of ways, those are not the first things that survivors hear. You know, if they take their story to their social group or to their family or to law enforcement. And I made the promise to myself that those are the first thing I'm going to say to a survivor. And because I, you know, I work with survivors here in this realm and I, and I love a lot of survivors in my you know, in my life and in my family. And this is the care that I would want for any of them. This is the care that I would have wanted for my ancestors who couldn't tell their stories, who this care didn't exist for. And so, so yeah, that's, I think, I think there is, you know, it's certainly, it's not always so poetic. Sometimes it's like, all right, it's January. You want a break from your pelvic exam to go take a, to go take a smoke break. You want me to come with you? Like, should we go, should we go do this together? It's not super poetic. And sometimes, you know, and And sometimes it doesn't always fit exactly into a box of nursing care that I was taught (laughs) in school, but it's just, you know, we're in the, we're in the business of, of human experience and how can we put the power back into the hands of a survivor while still hopefully 
getting their health needs met and protecting them from, yeah. uh, you know, that the sort of health impacts that come down the line, because Lord knows they'll have enough sort of psychological and social impacts to manage that if we can just manage the health piece in the here and now, hopefully we can bolster them to do a little bit better coming out of their experience. It's, it's a very patient driven model. I mean, their care is really dictated by what they feel like they can do in the moment. We, we educate them on the options that we can provide, but every step of the way, they have to mentally and physically feel like they're capable of taking the next step and giving them back that sense of control after having lost all of their sense of control is probably also equally as powerful. Absolutely. Do you, when a patient comes into the ED and they obviously need your services, do you, do you get to focus on that one patient or are you also managing other people at the same time? Is it that, so once somebody comes in, you guys get to kind of really uh, sit down with that patient and just focus on them? That's a beautiful thing about this program is it's it's not only patient driven, but it's nurse driven. Nurses created this program in 1992 because they saw the needs of survivors not being met. You know, they evidence needed to be collected. Uh, because their bodies, if they wanted to report, is a crime scene. And yet nobody was trained on how to do that. So you open up a box and you read the directions. It'd be like, you know, reading directions to put an IV in. You know, that's just not good. You shouldn't be you shouldn't be doing that. You should have some broader information on how to do what you have to do. And then also how to benefit the patient so they have better health outcomes. And so our four nurses were fabulous. They were brilliant. They took this nationwide movement in the 90s and said, we need this at UVM. And then they started it. And then all of us have just expanded it. You know, before we just, you know, worked with sexual assault and then we expanded to pediatric sexual assault and abuse. And then we expanded to intimate partner violence. Um, we see patients who have been strangled as a result of intimate partner violence. We help with identification and resources for human trafficking. Um, we have one nurse that's really interested in becoming an expert on how to identify, uh, basically document gunshot wounds. And be, and, you know, so that might be the next realm of what we do. We're those people who do the evidence collection for our gunshot wounds. Um, and there's just so many more things that we can do. You know, I would love to see us expand into the community. So we have forensic nurses, not just in our ED, but at UVM uh, Student Health, uh, where patients Absolutely. really where they go, community health center, Planned Parenthood. We could go there. They can, you know, they can have their own. You know, there's just so many different models that we can do. Now, uh, you kind of touched upon this, but do what? What is the training like to get to this point? I think like um, this is the my new little spiel. But like most Vermonters, you know, we have one person doing multiple things. So that one person is me. Not only do I you know, coordinate the program for UVM and a forensic nurse, but I also coordinate the program for the state. So what that means is, is with my pediatric partner, Tracy Wagner, we create uh, the program. The, the, it's a, 
it's a 60-hour didactic if you want to be adult, adolescent, and pediatric credentialed. So you do the didactic portion of learning about trauma-informed care, learning about STI medications, learning about injury identification. Most of it is within the scope of practice of, of nurses, but there's just that higher level of understanding. We meet our um, community members at the front, the Vermont Forensic Lab. You know, we go tour the lab to see where the evidence is kept and how they uh, they collect and, and how they do the evidence. And then we, um, you know, talk to the uh, across, and this is nurses across the state. So every hospital in Vermont has at least one forensic nurse. And so I, you know, Tracy and I support those nurses, but that's what the training is to begin. And then we recommend that you shadow at least two cases. But it's hard because you're practicing by yourself oftentimes. I mean, there's enough of us around in the day-to-day ED, but it's still scary. You know, I mean, it's you're learning a new skill and you're the one who the providers are saying, what do you think about this? What should we do about HIV? And if you've had just 40 hours, you're like, oh, my God, Abigail, what do I do? I don't know. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I think but, but I think also what do you do about HIV. So our HIV prophylaxis, if we're going to start, it has to be started within 72 hours of an assault. Uh I mean, I think one of the things that's really important to remember about the same program is that it treats everybody from infants to the elderly. And we do see an amazingly wide spectrum in ages. And we also see an amazingly diverse difference in the assaults that we see. And so every case, it's, it's a difficult program to train into because every time you get a case it's different from the last yeah and then every every victim's coping mechanisms for what have happened is just completely different but hiv prophylaxis if we do start it we talk to infectious disease and come up with a plan we usually involve some baseline blood work in red to make sure that you're starting in an hiv negative place we check your liver enzymes and your cbc and then we can start it up as long as you're within 72 hours of assault and we send them home with a few days worth and they follow up with the HIV clinic, who then usually keeps them on a 28 day course. But it's a lot for somebody to commit to because it means they have to take medications every day. But we do treat, you know, we treat for all of the common STDs. That's just the only one that requires that they take a prolonged course, but we're trying to minimize outpatient work for them as little as possible. So we do treat for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas the night that they come in if possible. So walk Um, us through a scenario of somebody kind of walking in uh, that's been recently assaulted. Like what, what is that process? What does that look like for that patient kind of from the beginning through the end and what, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, it's a little different different for everybody, everybody, but if you had kind of a or any example, yeah. yeah, just any example that sort of. Would I mean, I mean, the general place. way that it goes is that they they present to the emergency department. They're checked in through our triage nurses in the ER. The triage nurses reach out to whoever is on call as a sane nurse, and then we also reach out to the Hope Works group so that an advocate can come and be with them. Sometimes they have a friend with them. Sometimes there's a family member with them because remember we do a lot of adolescents as well. Um, Sometimes the police are with them. Sometimes the koozie group is with them. So it invariably it is a little bit different, but basically they're checked in. They will have an ER nurse until we arrive. And then 
the say nurse arrives and introduces sort of the options that we can give them as far as evidence collection, reporting to police, not reporting to police, and STD prophylaxis, pregnancy prophylaxis. And then if they do want DNA collection, then we perform that and send it to the crime lab. We can also screen urine for drug facilitated sexual assaults. And then we try and discharge them home with a safe person after we medicate them for STDs and such. So all in all, you're talking about a few hours. Yeah. You know, we take pictures, we take pictures of injuries. Obviously the kit has to all be sealed because it's evidence. So all those things take some time, but. Do you guys then get called by the courts to be witnesses or, or is it that most of your evidence is already collected so that doesn't happen? Yeah, I mean, if you're really lucky like me, then you get called to the table the first case you do. But (laughs) (laughs) regardless, if you're as lucky as I am, yeah, you do get called by the courts because we are seeing sexual assault to all age categories, some of it incredibly violent. We're seeing physical assault. We're pushing for restraining orders. We're documenting physical harm. So we do. And you're the experts. Right, exactly. So like if you're, if you're, you know, having any questions, you guys are the experts in what you're seeing. So I would think that would be super important too. Leslie and I are both in palliative care and we often get like in do oncology, like, why would you ever want to do that? And so tell us. Yeah, people say that to us. So so I can only imagine how often you guys probably get that question. Like, what drew you to this? What why did you decide this specialty? because uh, it's obviously you know, it's, it's super, it's huge, it's special, it's important, it's important, but it also has to be super draining at times and also emotionally hard. So tell us a little bit about your journey to this profession. Um, well, I can speak to this as um, somebody who saw it the same way I, I said, there is no way I ever want to do that. When I first had heard about it, I was working in the emergency department And after I heard it described, I said, oh, my gosh, that is not for me. That Mm -hmm. is something that I think I cannot adequately care for those types of patients. Um, I was too afraid of my own past trauma and how that would leave me feeling vulnerable and thinking that that just left me helpless with these people. And then this was um, when I lived back in Kansas. There was one night that I was assigned to be the covering nurse for a survivor of sexual assault. And as Abigail was describing, I really had very little to do with the patient's care. I was just simply assigned to help them meet uh, their needs until the forensic nurse arrived. And when the forensic nurse arrived and um, took my report, she basically changed the entire course of my career. After I finished giving her report, I just thanked her for doing something that I personally thought I could never do. And um, she told me, you know what? I thought the exact same thing. I thought this was would stretch my boundaries far too, you know, way too far from my level of comfort. But I realized that you, the forensic nurse, are the one person that starts the healing process for these survivors. You are the one person who is on their side implicitly without judgment or scrutiny. You are here to hear their story, validate their feelings. And these, you know, these survivors have been violated. They've had something taken from them. And you, as the forensic nurse, give them back what they've lost. You give them back the power that they may not have had before. You give back the power of choice 
And this is such an integral part in beginning the process of healing. We build the survivors up and we believe them. And while it may be difficult and uh, they may not be okay when they leave our exam room, but it's that first step in that healing process. And so I kind of spent some time ruminating on that. Um, and within a week, I started looking into the forensic program and I knew I was moving here to Vermont, you know, shortly thereafter. So um, as soon as I arrived at UVM, I said I was interested and somebody set me up with Renetta. And then that April, I went through the full uh, didactic course um, and had my first case in June of that would have been 2019. So for two years, I've been doing this and I am just so grateful to have, you know, to this, this nurse, I don't even know her name. I literally only saw her the one time, but you know, with each story that we hear, um, we help give these tools back to these survivors. And I'm just so honored to be a part of that, um, for to hear their stories, to hear them come forth, that their strength gives me strength. And I think that that's something that's really, truly amazing that you can't experience in the regular realm of nursing. So. And one of the other things, I think Sharissa talked to, touched on it, but, you know, this is hard work, but we have each other. And I think we one of the things that I really value about our program is the nurses that are part of the team. You know, we have an ongoing, you know, chat. You know, it's usually a patient came in who's available. Um, But every now and then, you know, there's some some fun humor. You know, we we uh, you know, we attend conferences. We, We didn't last year, but there's a national conference. Um, it was going to be in Orlando with the e, same time as the ENA conference. So it should be really interesting um, to have two really crazy groups <laughs> together, uh, forensic nurses and emergency room nurses. But and then we try and get together a few times a year just, you know, socially just to talk about the craziness that we deal with. Um, and I think that's helpful. Um, we spend, you know, our case review sometimes just having time to talk about different cases. What would you have done? And I saw, you know, I, I don't know if I did the right thing in that moment. What do you guys think? And, you know, I think we're all really forgiving of each other. We try to be and, you know, we try and and do the same things that we do with our patients to each other, which, you know, is, is often hard. I think sometimes we're kinder to our patients than we are to our own uh, peers. Yeah, I would imagine you guys have a pretty good collaboration with each other, right? Because it's it's a tough job, and then also like you you need to really be pretty probably specific in your care at times, and like wanting to know like, okay, am I doing this right? Am I, you know, is this yeah. where what do you, are you seeing anything different than I'm seeing? I also think it's amazing, you know, I, especially in palliative and oncology care as well, the sort of bond that you get from going through something. So while the, there might be like a common bond, you may not hang out together normally. The common bond of the experience makes you closer. It's that that has always intrigued me in nursing because I think that it 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 just it's such a deep trust that we end up having for one another so that we can really do our jobs better, right? I love that, Yeah, I love that. And I get that sense that obviously that is the same sort of experience that you guys are having as a as a core group. Yeah, the team. I also, you asked, you know, sort of what compelled us to do this job and it is crazy on top of a, you know, full-time already crazy job working in the emergency department. But if you look at the sheer number of people that are sexually assaulted every year, it's like one in three women, one in six men, and one out of every two transgenders. It's just 
I mean, it's literally a societal crisis. It's really hard to stand back and not feel like you're trying to do something about that. You might not be able to stop it, but you want to figure out some way that you can help people move through that because it's such an impactful form of violence that affects these survivors for the rest of their lives. Right. I mean, physically, mentally, financially, it just across the spectrum is going to affect somebody forever. It probably affects every single one of their relationships going forward after that. I mean, honestly. And I think their friendships, you know, it it, it breaks down all these like very important concepts of trust and, and, and who they feel safe around and their sense of control in life and if they can be alone. And it's, it's just very detrimental to society as a whole. I would imagine there's, I, I would imagine there's a lot of subsequent, if it wasn't there before, subsequent drug and alcohol abuse after too, as a coping mechanism or a way to compartmentalize um, the experience. Yes, and there's often, a, actually, like often a re-victimization as well. Right, right. People exactly. who play into, you know, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, time and time again. It's interesting that you mentioned the like, like these are at, these rates of assault are at epidemic levels in our country. And I think that that was, I was sort of peer pressured into staying by Raynetta. <laughs> well, there was this like, uh, you know, there is a patient of mine who needed, who needed a forensic nurse and Raynetta just like swooped in in the middle of the night. And I was like, okay, bye. And she was like, mm-mm. Uh, <laughs> I ended up like, I ended nice, up shadowing cases. I ended up like shadowing cases and I ended up with quite a lot of time to think about it just because I sort of, I wasn't sure that I was emotionally equipped to to bear witness and to hold space for, for this type of work. And I don't identify as a survivor. And one of the things that sort of helped me move into this space is that, you know, I mentioned, you know, we all know survivors, we all love survivors and the, this group works with survivors. And it just didn't feel right to me that this, that only survivors should be doing this work. You know, this is a great space for for the work and activism of allies. And that's where I felt as though I had a a lane to work in because survivors are everywhere. Abigail mentioned the rates at which survivors exist in our society and they are in every room. They are in every conversation. Our survivors are our communities and the ability to educate, to become educated as well as to work in the realm of trauma-informed care and to become a point person on how to navigate some really, really tricky social stuff that comes in through our department is, it, it just, it feels like a privilege. And it feels like the most, even though I resisted it at first, it feels like the most um, natural space for me to function in in nursing. For, for me, it's the most authentic and organic way for me to show up in a nursing practice. What is trauma-informed care? Trauma. Trauma. Oh, trauma. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I was like, well, there's a whole nother <laughs> <be> drama. <laughs> a whole other podcast. Okay. Here. Wait a second. I was like, what? Whoa. All right. Trauma. Trauma. <laughs> trauma. And basically what that means is that we recognize that everybody has some form of trauma in their life and it can change how you present. It can change, you know, who you are as a person. And we have to recognize that. And I just want to, you know, really kind of tag on um, a thought that all the patients, if one in five patients, if one in five people have been assaulted that are female, that those are the patients that we see in all of our spaces in the hospital. Those are the patients that we see in the emergency department that are struggling with mental health. You know, you, you, I bet if you ask 
90% of our suicidal patients, they have experienced some type of sexual harm in their lifetime? The answer would be absolutely yes. So I always say, if we don't do this work now, if we don't support the forensic nursing program, or if we don't encourage this type of training with all of our nurses, then we are going to miss this opportunity and more people are going to suffer as a result. So if there was a magic pill and there's no magic pill for this, then the magic pill would be forensic nursing care and advocacy because that's our power is believing survivors. Our power is, you know, listening to them, giving them a voice, giving them control, and that helps them heal. And there's been a lot of studies on, you know, the improved health outcomes once, you know, advocacy and forensic nursing is involved after sexual assault. Um, So that's the power of what we do and why we keep getting up at three o'clock in the morning to do it, because it's always three o'clock in the morning. Do you feel that you're better nurses because you've done this? Does it do you feel like this has made you better nurses in some ways? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All of us are nodding. I realize you can't you can't see me nodding. Um, but yeah, I I think that this training, this work, and and putting myself in these spaces in these clinical situations have have made me a better listener for my patients that show up. You know, just that practice of holding space and discomfort. That's, yeah. Okay. I you know it's it's even somebody who has belly pain or who has a broken ankle. Like oh well. Now I, I've I've listened to the worst story I have I could ever imagine. So now I can you know I can listen to them talk about being worried about how slippery it is outside in these new crutches. But I mean in in learning how to hold space for violence and for trauma, it has taught me that I I do have time, I do have space, I do have I I will never run out of love to give my patients. And I didn't realize that. I thought that when I got tired enough or um, when my feet hurt enough that maybe I would run out of love. But no, turns out, uh, turns out there's just, you know, for the people who are doing this work, it's just kind of, it, it turns out it's bottomless. It's so interesting yeah, because I know you literally just made me cry. <laughs> well, and it's so, that's a first. It's so interesting because you would think the opposite, right? You would think that you would get easily burned out with that, but instead it kind of actually like re uh, reinvigorate. Not, I mean, that's probably the wrong yeah, word. No, I think know, that's a great word. It does reinvigorate you, yeah. and uh, yeah. and I think that is so special. Like that's such a because I think uh, the uh, you know we all think the opposite, and right. really it's it not. It booms your love. I yeah. mean, it really, I I feel that. You know, yeah. I I, I, I I think a lot like palliative medicine, like it really embodies the humanity of medicine. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And 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 it embodies the humanity of just how fragile and um and amazing the body is all at once right and and how we and how we nurture to that as nurses for sure oh my gosh i feel like i could talk to you guys forever seriously all day (laughs) i guess the the one of the things i didn't realize kind of in that same vein was that working with survivors of horrific trauma would be healing work and I didn't realize that that would be a therapeutic thing, both for them and for me, to to provide good care in that space. And that was one of the just like happy surprises. 
yeah, Raynetta didn't tell me about any of this. She was just like, oh, but she knew. <laughs> yeah. She knew. <laughs> like we really need, we really need fresh young people. Like this is a great, this is a great space for you to be in. Yeah. She didn't tell me about any of the good stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think it's probably one of those things you kind of have to, you have to be in it to, to experience, to understand it too. So. And we certainly lose people, you know, I mean, you're, you're speaking to, you know, the ones who have been doing this for a while, but it, it's certainly not for everyone. I mean, you right. get into it and you realize I, I can't deal with your trauma. I'm not equipped to do that. The other thing that I think is how, most what I see, because I've been doing this for a while, what I see nurses who come in and they're a little unsure of their if they can do this, do I have the capacity to provide this care? They blossom in the fact that they have amazing critical thinking skills after this because you have to, because as as we've all said, there is absolutely no case that is the same. There's no algorithm for this. Right type of care. Um, so you're always having to think, okay, I'm not quite sure what I should do, but let me look at, let me talk to my team or, you know, maybe this will work. Uh, so you have to really, you expand your, your critical thinking skills, which is brilliant. I mean, that's what it's we all hope. Exciting. Yeah. In nursing, I yeah. think. And one of the most important skills that we right. have as nurses. Yeah. It's a really flexible and really interesting scope. And you do have to be comfortable working quite independently with independent, but with resources. Whereas in the rest of the emergency department, you are, you are working in a team. Like you have, yeah. like you have yourself, you have your patient, you have a resident, you have an attending, you have consulting services, you have your charge nurse. Who, pharmacist. Yeah. Yeah. You have all of these resources and it's like, and they're in the room with you in the space with you. And so SANE is quite a bit different. And in, it's it's different and I feel like it just uses a different part of my brain, which is pretty refreshing. Because it's very nurse driven. Very, yeah. very nurse driven. Very, very nurse driven. And it's just so it's such a different pace. It's really wonderful to work with people one on one to get called in and be like, Okay, I am here for this person and this is gonna take as long as it takes because I don't have anything else to do. I have nowhere else to be. And that's not the privilege that you get when you have three or four or five patients who need medical care in the ED. But it's I, I think it's the best part of our model is that we get to show up and just be there for our for this patient, the survivor. And there's there isn't you know, they set the pace. They get to tell us what kind of rush we're in, whereas the rest of the system doesn't have doesn't have that pull and that play outside of in your room, you yeah. know. Oh, this has been so great, guys. So great, so, you thank guys. you yeah. so much for coming to talk to us. Is there anything else that you guys want to get out there about your, you know, specialty? Is there, I know if somebody is, we actually, yeah, we actually have one of the nurses here that was that was asking about it because she was like, oh, it's something I've been wanting to do in my career. You know, how, I was like, well, I know who you can get a hold of. <laughs> well, actually, we were, she, she actually brought it up and yeah. we said, that's really interesting and timely because we're about to talk with that team today on the podcast. And she was like, really? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> So you don't have to be an ED nurse. You don't have to work in the emergency room. We have pediatric nurses. We have someone from labor and delivery. We have someone from the SICU resource. Sharissa, you're now in the resource, right? ICU are the critical care resource. And then we have somebody else from that department as well. So really, any you can work from anywhere or you can work in any type of environment. Um, the next course is in, Oct in October. So if anybody's interested, just reach out to myself or anybody on this team. They all know how to get a hold of me or their nurse manager, and they can uh, find out through Kristen. 
Oh, great. Mm. Wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys so, yeah. so much. And thank you for what you do. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And every day I feel like I learn something new about nursing and I'm just floored at how awesome our profession is. It's so yeah. You guys embody yeah. that completely. Yeah. Thank so, you so thank much. You. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye guys. Bye.